2: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. Hello again. You're listening to the Game Podcast from the Times. We're looking back, of course, at the opening week of the Premier League season. An amazing opening day from Leeds as well. I think they let the champions Liverpool off the hook. We'll discuss that at length. Also, Spurs. Well, they were lucky their game was behind closed doors. They stank out the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And sharpen your elbows, Andy Carroll is back. Just a reminder, subscribe to the podcast and to the Times digitally as well. You get the best of our brilliant sports journalism. Speaking of which, my name's Hugh Croft. We've got some brilliant sports journalists from the Times as ever. The great Gregor Robertson, James Restall and Tom Roddy with me this Monday. Hello, guys. How are you doing?
1: Very well, thank you. How are you. Here?
2: I'm good. I'm good. I, I've recovered from the week of getting a lot of, um, well, I can't say what, from Leeds fans who weren't happy with my, uh, <laughs> my, de- my debut. You I must have loved off.
1: that first half then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let's start by talking about the game at Anfield then. It was probably one of the best opening big fixtures on a, um, for a team coming up. You know, you go away to the champions. Everyone expects you to get, well, not everyone expects you to get battered, but that's the worst case scenario, right? And... Leeds were excellent but really my view on it is Liverpool were more bad than Leeds were good now yeah that's right I'm doubling down Leeds
1: fans come at me um,
2: before I get to my point what did you guys think of the game
1: I thought both teams you're right in both ways like Liverpool Van Dijk made an uncharacteristic error for a goal I think Trent Alexander might have, Arnold might have dipped a little bit you know Jack Harrison's opener mm. was a, an absolute stunner, but it was a bit easy from a defensive point of view. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm going to double down on how exciting Leeds are going to be uh, to watch this season because it was a thrilling opening half and leads have shown what everyone really hoped and pretty much knew is that they're going to be very, very brave and they're going to be uh, exactly the same as they were in the championship and, and they're going to be a pro- tough proposition for, for any team. It's going to be exciting at both ends of the pitch, I think, because defensively they, you know, they're going to be punished more than they were last season, but uh, certainly it's not going to be dull for Leeds this season.
2: Hold on a minute, last week you were saying how brilliant their defence is.
1: Yeah, I don't, I think, looking at the at the team, and obviously Liam Cooper was missing the captain, but I'll be honest, he's he's someone who's got a rick in him as well, so uh, obviously Cork had a bit of a, um, an easy one for the headline writers on his first day with the handball, <laughs> I think there could be there could be worries defensively, yes, because obviously the step up is huge. But I still think Leeds are going to be a really tough pro- proposition for any team.
3: What was really interesting before in the build up to the game, um, Karen Carney, who wrote a tactics column in the Times um, the day before the game, was talking about the importance of pressing Calvin Phillips and making sure he doesn't get any time on the ball. And uh, and that's exactly what happened. He was he was he gets on the ball. The other Leeds mid- midfielders vacate the space, and the Liverpool midfielders didn't know what to do. They didn't know whether to go and press in, whether to go and track their runners. And he had lots of time to just ping great balls out to the wings, and uh, and Leeds punished Liverpool's high line. And it was it was really interesting to see. You know, we knew Bielsa would study Le- uh, study Liverpool in meticulous detail. He knew that they could be got at behind the uh, behind the fullbacks, and uh, and that's exactly what happened. And you know dare i say it is there a little bit of a blueprint there as to how you put liverpool under a bit of pressure i did, I did a uh,
0: did a piece with jason McAteer on the, in the lead up to the to the new season and he he said about we were doing a piece on how to beat liverpool and he said about how high they play and that's kind of you've got to to ruffle van dyke's feathers you've got to get him turned around and Leeds did that so often, as, as James said, you know, spreading the ball wide. And it was nice to see Calvin Phillips really showing his ability as a one uh, and a number six on his own from what happened with England. Um, but I do I agree with you, Hugh, in, in terms of Liverpool's kind of issues there. If I was looking at it with... Jürgen Klopp I'd be concerned because I think the last five games of the season after um, winning the title it was only against Villa that they kept a clean sheet and then conceding it is Leeds and they are very impressive but they still conceded three goals against the promoted side Um, and the reason um, in our Premier League predictions before the season, I had Liverpool top, and the only reason for that was Van Dijk. And now I'm a little sceptical of whether that was the right thing to do.
3: I do think there is there is there is that one there is one thing I would say in in Liverpool's defence is that it's been such a quick turnaround. Um, the players have all been away on international break. Uh, they haven't had a lot of time to have kind of all work together as a unit, and you could kind of see that. I mean, I am watching match today. No, you could see you could see you could see how they were all sort of dragged all over the place, really, in yeah, terms of their defensive line. We're, and we're, I, we're talking about a
2: defensive line that's won the Champions League, the Premier League last season. No new know, players in here, no new players in there, no new signings in there. Van Dyke's played with Gomez plenty of times. Trent Alexander and, and Andrew Robertson are their first choice fullbacks and have been for the last couple of seasons. They're playing a newly promoted team. That defensive showing from Liverpool was pretty much as poor as it gets. Joe Gomez was powder puff. He has been for ages. 50-50 challenges. You want your centre-back to go through the ball. He never does. Trent Alexander-Arnold was getting dragged so deep. Credit to Leeds for that. Yeah, I said it. And Van Dijk was just incredibly casual. And he was, to be honest, towards the end of last season. So that's just complacency for me. I watched the team. Certainly that defence... That, that thought they were guaranteed to win, uh, James. That's what I saw. I, I can't say that not being able to mould over the, the pre-season. Well, all the other teams didn't defend shambolically this weekend. Uh, I,
3: don't think it's, I don't think it's a case of moulding. I think it's just a case of sharpness and, 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 and working together. And I mean, I'd, Gregor, I mean, I'd like to throw these things over to you when we do this and say, you know, how much does, how important is pre-season when you're, when you're lining up a defence and you're getting organised and you're going into a new season?
1: Well, it has been a unique proposition, obviously. I mean, the the how short a period it's been, and even with t- with some players have been quarantined and some players have been on international duty. So, you know, Jurgen Klopp said that it's not like it's not like riding a bike. You don't just kind of jump back on board and, and and everyone has kind of got the dynamics of the defense defensive structure straight away. So, there's some truth in that. But personally, I think we've just got to give more credit to Leeds because the the way that they the, the way that they pressed as well was just you know they're Energy is astounding, and I think I think Leeds deserve credit for it. Klopp again. I'll hand over to Klopp. He said that this is a special team and that they're a pretty unique proposition, and I think that's true. I think we saw that. So look, I, I don't think you know it's one game, and I don't think you know Leeds fans. There was a lot of a lot made of this performance. They still lost, uh, but it showed that Leeds are not going to be. They're not going to change. I think we knew that. Um, And it shows that they're they're going to be a a tough proposition for any team in the Premier League.
2: I thought the midfield area as well for Liverpool, not to labour on how badly they played, was pretty woeful as well. Um, Letting those runners, and to be honest, there are a lot of committed forward runners from Leeds United, and that was great to see because that will get them goals. And getting three against Liverpool is no mean feat. Three goals from three shots on target, no less. Um, Just speaking about finishing in the final third, for Liverpool because I know fans like to talk about Roberto Firmino who looked pretty woeful actually yesterday and again we can talk about sharpness maybe um, going forward Liverpool Mohamed Salah scored a hat-trick okay two penalties in there but really without his performance Leeds win on Saturday right they lost 4-3 but it probably would have been a comfortable victory what do you think
1: I'd say I mean well Liverpool had 22 shots to lead six so I still think Liverpool uh, dominated in, in in the opposition penalty box. Leeds Leeds for all the good play they had and all the pressing and all that they made life difficult for Liverpool. They, as you say, they they had three shots on target and scored three goals. So, uh, yeah, Salah Salah was on sparkling form, no doubt about it. But um, I still think Leeds, you know, Bamford was handed a goal. Um, they're still not still not entirely sure where all their goals are going to come from. Uh, so I think Liverpool still a sparkling seller was. They were they were pretty clinical and they made plenty of chances.
2: Can you re- yeah. can you remember an opening day game that lived up to it in the fashion that this did?
1: No, I can't personally no. <laughs> uh,
3: I'd, I'd I'd like to hazard a guess. For, I'd like to say uh, Carlisle United won Leighton Orient five in 2013. <laughs> but we won't go down that um, we won't go down that road. Uh, today,
2: James, you were going to come back on Gregor's point, though.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I, I, I kind of I, I, just with Liverpool going forwards, um, th- this might you might you might say this is too simplistic of you, but you've got to get in the box to win a penalty, and um, the fact that I thought I thought Liverpool still looked very good going forwards. Um, there was that brilliant um, one-two exchange with Mane and Salah, which um, which yeah. ended in a missed chance. But I mean, there was. Given that this was the, the first game of the season and we talk about rustiness and we talk about lack of preparation, they still looked like they can produce really slick performances, I thought. And, and you know, it yeah, probably was the defensive ricks that kind of made it look as tight a game as it was because Liverpool did look good going forwards, I thought.
2: Let's do our first week takeaways. Um, last week I asked for hot takes. Now we're doing hot takeaways from the first weekend of the Premier League season. (laughs) Feel free to compare your hot takeaway, by the way, to um, one of your favourite delicious meals, that Friday night kebab, whatever it might be. Um, Tom, I'm going to start with you. From the first weekend of action,
0: what's your takeaway? I think uh, I probably looked for the first weekend, I probably looked at North London with quite a lot of excitement, really, seeing Arsenal and, and Spurs in action because... I thought, uh, apart from Arsenal off the field, I thought that both clubs had a really good summer. Um, you had Arsenal adding William, who I thought was the, the, the length of the contract is a bit of an issue. But for immediate effect, I think he's a great addition. Aubameyang is going to sign his new contract. Uh, Gabriel looked absolutely brilliant. He brought sort of a ruthlessness to to their central defence that they really haven't had. He looks like the man they needed, and the, all the expectations uh, that you expected to see at Craven Cottage with Arsenal kind of came true because they're 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 totally different now under Arteta. And then on the flip side with Tottenham, I was I thought. Mourinho had recruited really well and 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 I I still do think he he has done I think Hoiberg will have the kind of bite in midfield which he wanted um we all know what he said in the documentary about the kind of players he 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 want how he wanted his players to act and I think Hoiberg's that man and Doherty coming in uh, but it just didn't work out and I think Mm. when he spoke about after the match needing a striker and before the match needing a striker I actually thought they missed that link man in midfield and it was the the loss of Christian Eriksen really seems the big problem to me because you had all you had a great excitement going forward with Son Bergwijn coming on obviously Harry Kane and and Deli Alley in the first half but there was no one to link from the, from midfield to attack Um it, you had you had uh, Dyer in central defence, and of course, and I actually thought and came on and added the the most excitement to them.
1: And Domboli is the is the one as well. He's the kind of he's the conundrum. But you know, he might he might he might leave the club. But I thought I thought actually when he came on, he was trying. It looked like he was trying too hard, trying too much. There was a a, a passage of play with, within you know thirty seconds. He gave the ball away twice, and Everton had two half chances where he tried to kind of flick the ball over somebody in midfield. I know he's a creator, and that's what he's. That's what he's good at, and he likes to, you know, he plays off the cuff. But I think, you know, I don't know, maybe he's kind of short of confidence or what. So the the thing that I took away from Spurs was that is anyone buying into what Mourinho really is is wants for this from this team? You know, he's still talking about a lazy lazy front line, and you know they 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 don't look like they're enjoying the way that they're being asked to play. So that's hugely a concern. I know it's one game, we're gonna have to keep saying that caveat. Ninety minutes of football here, but. I mean I would I'd be pretty depressed about the season ahead if I was a sports fan. The
3: the 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 player Tottenham were crying out for was wearing the number 19 shirt for Everton. Um, and James Rodriguez. And it was it, it was an absolute joy to watch James Rodriguez yesterday. I mean, uh, I don't want to get too statty at this stage, but there was a, someone someone told me that no one has created five chances on their Premier League debut since Alexis Sanchez 2013. Um he looked like Rodriguez looked like he was really on a mission to impress and to, and to, and to, and to prove I am the real deal and I will make a difference. But I mean, it was like, have you seen any team more transformed from the end of last season to the start of this season than Everton? I mean, they just, they just looked a completely different proposition. The midfield were electric. Um, I mean, they, they, they were just, it was just, it was just like watching, you know, and you compare them to Spurs and they, you look like one team with real ambition and purpose and another team that I mean I couldn't tell you what Spurs were yesterday genuinely it felt like it could be a really
0: big moment for Everton signing that midfield uh, and having Angelotti in charge it it felt like a really big moment for that club in in where they go now because they're always they always spend quite a bit of money and um it, it, it tends to be a little bit disappointing in the end the the kind of expectation is always higher than the overall achievement. And it doesn't feel like that this year. It feels like they have the potential to get into that top six. And that, again, it is one game and Spurs were awful. They let them play so much, but they were exciting to watch and there clearly is the potential there.
2: First weekend, hot takeaway from Spurs, the service station coffee of the Premier League, rarely providing the pick-me-up you need. Lack of energy, flat, unimaginative. Funnily enough, though, Tom, I think you're right on the link player. They've got Lamella. They've got La Celso in particular, um, who could maybe play that role for them. Harry Kane looked unhappy. Harry Kane looked overplayed as well. You know, every season we talk about injury troubles and whatnot. But towards the end of that lockdown period, you felt like he was getting towards his physical best. And... He he looked a million miles away, to be honest, on the weekend. But so did the rest of the Spurs players and whose responsibility is that, you know, the fitness level just didn't seem to be there. And Jose Mourinho loves to talk about responsibilities for other people. Bear in mind last week I tipped them for a place in the top four. I'm getting hammered for that as well. Uh, from the <laughs> not from the Spurs Turn fans. Turn the mentions funny, off mate. you. I know, mate, I know. But I was I was shocked, mate. I was I was genuinely shocked to see
3: that basically they'd gone backwards. The the thing that, the thing that I was talking to Tony Cascarino yesterday uh, about his, uh, for his column in the game. And the one thing that he sort of noticed, and it's one thing you you can notice because there's no fans in the ground and you can turn the fake crowd noise off, which I do for every game and you can, and you can, you can hear things and, and what he, what really struck him was the silence from the Tottenham players. There was no one calling each other out and demanding more. And, Um, we've probably all watched the all or nothing series. Um, and I think in one of the early episodes, um, Kane sort of speaks up in one of the team meetings and says, no one, no one, no one's demanding anything from each other. No one's, no one's taking responsibility on the pitch. And I was thinking that's, that's, that's what that's, that's November, December time and no one's doing it now. You know what's changed. And if I was Harry Kane, I'd be furious about yesterday because I think he had two touches in the opposition box um no one was creating anything for him he's probably thinking do I have to create all this myself do I have to create these chances myself and you know he's not the same player as three four years ago when he would conjure a shot out of nothing and score which he was doing on a on quite a frequent level now I think he's kind of he needs players to create more things for him and get him in good positions and it's just it's just not happening I'd be hugely frustrated if I was him and you could see it yesterday couldn't you on
0: the pitch there was that one chance where uh, i think it was son who played in Delhi alley instead of him yes and harry kane was so angry with son which you don't you don't see that kind of frustration and emotion from kane as much and and especially at the first game of the season
1: i think that's in stark contrast to come back to the, the managers a stark contrast to arsenal now and you see the kind of zip and pace that they're playing with and Leeds, who were coached and drilled to the finest detail, and you saw that, and that was evidenced in the pitch. So that is not happening at Spurs. And, you know, we discussed this beforehand. You could say that, yeah, Mourinho is usually functional and effective, and it might well be. It might well be. They might, they might well finish fourth. But it's not going to be fun.
2: It was as bad a 1-0 defeat, pretty much, as, as you could have seen. Um, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't really give away dozens and dozens of chances to Everton, but Everton just controlled the game and I think we were expecting certainly more of an even contest Eric Dyer at centre-back won't cut it for me they definitely need a plan B as well which they don't seem to be working on at Tottenham because when you thought they could have changed the situation changed the gear come up with something a little bit different they just didn't have it and of course after the game Jose Mourinho asked after one match Gregor as you point out whether he's under pressure which I thought was incredible given everything that Jose's done.
0: Does anyone feel like he's under pressure? I think if those performances continue, then he will be. I don't think he is now. I think you could see in his face on the touchline how disappointed he was with the way in which his team performed and the frustration in that, but... I thought it it, it was. I done a piece with Steve Sidwell today, and he was saying about watching the Spurs documentary. It was so nice to see how he's exactly the same manager he was in 2007. That kind of touchy feely, really close, and um, you know the little boost that he gives his players. We saw it in the meetings with Kane and Deli, and uh, and on the training pitch. But the one thing is whether he's kind of developed tactically and seeing the way they played yesterday, they looked, they looked totally different and out of, they, they just didn't suit the system at all. There wasn't a system in, in in my eyes. Anyway, you, you saw the the likes of, as Gregor said, the likes of Arsenal and Leeds playing with, with a system they believed in and that was effective. And Tottenham was so ineffective.
2: James, what's your takeaway then for the first weekend?
3: Um, my takeaway is that uh, it looks like Arsenal have been watching lots of videos of Sheffield United. Um, uh, I think, you know, Wenger was, Wenger, Wenger was a big admirer of um, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona team. While I think Mikel Arteta has been watching lots of Chris Wilder in, uh, during lockdown and, and, and in the break because um, they were playing with uh, overlapping centre-backs. And, um the wing backs were cutting inside and trying to get into the box, and and holding and Tierney were creating the width, and it was it was uh, a remarkable thing to see from an Arsenal team. But it was uh, it was hugely pleasing, and I think you know in two ways really, because one it showed what uh, what what an astute tactical manager Arteta is, um, and the way he's managed to drill this team in a relatively short space of time. But also the fact that Chris Wilder is having a lasting impact on the Premier League, and you know much like. Uh, when Antonio Conte came in and everyone started doing three at the back, and three at the back became the vogue, and I think within a season you'd had no teams playing it, to every team had played it once. Um, now uh, teams are trying to be Sheffield United, and I think that's I think that's great, and it's great for the Premier League, and um, and it was effective for for Arsenal. I mean, Fulham were Fulham were quite limited, but but Arsenal they look they look really really tactically astute.
2: One thing I've learned after one episode of this podcast is Gregor finds it hard to uh, hide his reactions he can barely keep this (laughs) grin off his face (laughs) having tipped Mikel Arteta and told us last week about what a manager he's going to be and how Arsenal are going to be great go on then Gregor
1: no I'm not someone to gloat at all no (laughs) No. it's it's, it's 90 minutes look I find the thing is the third goal was something that made you sit up and go you know look this is this is proper you know Arsenal built from the back uh, through midfield, Willy cut inside, delightful little ball, Aubameyang finish. It was like Henri. That's he's, that's become his trademark finish. And you think that is, you know, it's all, it was like kind of you could see the influence of Guardiola again. It's like you know, building from the back, real risk as well. You know, putting the ball at great risk, it, giving it to your defenders when they're under pressure, and now they seem to be comfortable doing it. And it's like, you know, again, that's that you can see the influence of the manager on the team strikingly. Uh, so, look, there, there are going to be issues and consistency has been the big one for Arsenal for a long, long time. But uh, as I said last week, the are hugely promising going forward for them. Well, cut one thing about the overlapping centre-backs. I, I thought at the time, you know, Sheffield United have been doing that since they were in League One and clearly when they get in the Premier League, everyone looks and, and goes, and this was, you know, people were pouring over it on Monday Night Football, Jamie Redknapp and Gary, Gary <laughs> Neville, and then you're thinking, wow, Sheffield United having this impact on the on, on the Premier League. And I think, you know, you do wonder whether it's going to spread, then there are teams in the Championship doing it now. Gary Row at Millwall vis- visited, I know he went to visit Sheffield United when he was out of work, he left Stoke, and he watched them for and training and how they kind of go about it and he's tried to do it a bit at Millwall so you know it'd be interesting to see because Biels is another one last season when they played Sheffield United he said in the build-up to the game this is a manager in a team who's taught me new things I'm watching it and I've, this team is doing things I've never seen before so yeah imagine Chris Wilder Alan Nil, Sheffield United influence on uh, on uh, the biggest league in in world football brilliant.
3: I also thought, though, just just one last point on this was that watching that third goal against Fulham, not quite a carbon copy, but very similar to the goal they scored in the Community Shield against Liverpool, playing out from the back and getting it to Bamiang and switching the play really quickly. And I and I and I just thought, if there's that, that, there is a clear blueprint there. And they got a bit lucky with you know with, with the clash that allowed Willian a bit of time to get the ball in. But now they've got a player like Willian who can pick a pass and can create things. Um, I mean, they—they—you know—they. I think Arsenal fans are right to be a little more excited than they might normally be going into a season. I, I don't want to make any bold predictions about them, um, but you know, they're, they're, the signs are really positive.
2: Yeah, Willian expedited into fantasy football teams up and down the country immediately <laughs> after that first weekend performance. Um, Gregor, did you have a takeaway from the first weekend?
1: Mine was about the two kind of middle-class teams in uh, Everton and, and Newcastle. I think you could, the, the, their transfer business uh, suddenly makes them both look like they have really balanced teams. I mean, you know, we s- we spoke about Rodriguez there briefly and he looks like, you know, he could potentially be a star, but if you look more broadly at, at Everton's team now, it looks really well balanced. Uh, Alan and in midfield, transform the midfield for them and just look, makes them look much more, a much more solid proposition. And Calvert-Lewin, I, you know, I think he's He's going to play for England. I think he will have a a, a good England, a good good England career. He's a an all-rounder, brilliant in the air, can stretch defences running behind, can hold the ball up, clever. And now he's added goals. I think he's he's got a huge future. Uh, so, and again with Newcastle, I think they have signed a a really hugely promising left back in Jamal Lewis, who was brilliant. Callum Wilson, I think 20 million could look like a snip if he stays fit. And again, it's the same as as uh, Calvert Lewin. He stretches, but you can hold the play up. He's a bit of an all-rounder, and if he gets goals, he'll be, and I hit Jeff Hendrick as well, he was he was excellent. You know, really solid signing. So those teams have done a bit of early business, and you know, we're obviously again, <laughs> I don't know how many times we have to say this, but it's one game, but the players look like they've made an impact, and they've just, and they were the, they were the players that they needed. They've, they've highlighted areas that needed strengthened and they've done so. And uh, you know, I think when you look at someone like Spurs and a couple of other teams in the Premier League who've not done any business yet, are very limited. Uh, you know, I think the contrast is there, and they've that's a hugely promising opening weekend for those two teams.
0: Yeah, with Newcastle, Steve Bruce was speaking after the game and saying that in terms of their recruitment, he, he kind of went for safe bets. He went for players like Callum Wilson, who's done it in the Premier League, Jeff, uh, Jeff Hendrick and Jamal Lewis. They've seen it. It's... They 're very comfortable with the league, so it was he, he felt it was a safe bet and also people with a point to prove and I completely agree with Gregor with on Newcastle because they, they they looked quite one dimensional last year, and now you 've got Andy Carroll pushing the lines on bullying defenders but being quite aggressive and a threat in the air while Callum Wilson's running the lines constantly and just pulling a, a terrible West Ham side but pulling them around all over the place and it was just so effective.
1: Wilson can play up front on his own too. Carroll won't play all the time and he's you know, we're about his injury record. He could play on his own. Ryan Fraser didn't really even feature so he can come in on the right and Maxima on the left. That's a good front three as well if, you, if you're not going to play two up front so you know I think there's options as well in there.
2: So interestingly to drill in on the tactics from the first weekend because it feels like a bit of a theme that we've been discussing excellent from Leeds. when we're talking about newcastle and everton there was there anything particularly tactical around the difference because what it seemed like when i was watching newcastle was you knew what players just wanted to do and i think that was what was lacking from spurs it wasn't didn't seem like a tactical masterclass. for example calvert lewin and callum wilson you just went well this is what they like to do Calvert-Lewin likes to just peel off the defender. When he gets it, he'll hold it up. He'll wait for someone to come through. You almost knew what your teammate was going to do. Callum Wilson, he ran in behind early, stretched the defence. When he got it, he held it up. He waited for support. It was nothing complicated. We're not going to write books about it, but it was effective, right? And Leeds was something completely different. But again, it was extremely effective. So is there something to be said about less of a tactical game plan and more of a buying effective players... Who do the the basics well.
1: I mean I think there's a balance in there, surely. I think Leeds have been drilled in this, this way for two years now and they know it inside out and he's taken Belgium's taken players and improved them. I think when you're new when you're Newcastle and when you're Everton, they needed to improve their squad and they needed to in certain areas of the pitch. But as you say, you look at Newcastle's team, Isaac Hayden and John Joe Shelvy, they're solid. Shelvy Shelvy feels like he's you know, he's never quite fulfilled his potential, but he's a he's a top player on his day. Um, and I, I think, as I say, I think just the addition of one player centre-forward, that's a dimension they didn't really have before. Joe Ellington was kind of, he was a target man, he never, so there was never an option of going in behind. He never, you know, you couldn't, couldn't stretch the play. And when Newcastle's biggest issue has been getting players in support of him as well. so. <laughs> it was very difficult for Newcastle to to keep hold of the ball for very long. So, yeah, I mean, of of course, the signing signing players uh, that that are that are going to improve the improve the group is is vital for every team. But I think with Newcastle and Everton, it's not as you say, it's not a it's it's not rewriting uh, any any tactical blueprints. It's just it's just doing their jobs very well.
0: I mean, I've just spoken about. Steve Bruce buying uh, safe bets, Everton were the total opposite in a way where they have bought um, Alan and James Rodriguez in who have never played in the league before um, and they just were, they were so they were brilliant, I mean their midfield was totally transformed and I thought Rodriguez because of his history because we kind of know him so well from the 2014 World Cup we experienced expected or the expectations were high. With Alan we weren't social, but I actually thought he was even better than Rodriguez. I thought he dictated the play completely, even though Spurs let him play, but he looked like a real good guy.
2: Hamas Rodriguez was was excellent as well. I think he had more touches than any Everton player has had for the last twenty games. But for a player that's been there for what, four days, Callum Wilson five days or something like that, to play like that on the first weekend was was pretty cool to see. Go on James.
3: I uh, it was just uh, it was good to see Newcastle doing, you know, it it wasn't it wasn't reinventing the wheel tactically, but it was good to see them go 4-4-2 and actually kind of utilize the strength of having a kind of almost traditional strike partnership of of um, sort of big man smaller man um, that we've, you know, uh, I haven't seen a strike partnership like that for, you know, you don't always see that in the Premier League these days. Um, and given that Newcastle do have good wing players, Um, just seemed seemed to make sense. And Mm. if you get the ball into the box, Callum Wilson is more often than not going to get on the end of a chance or fashion something. And it's what Newcastle have been crying out for. But But I think credit, where Steve Bruce deserves credit, is for going a little bit more positive because he could easily have done his, you know, set up with five at the back and four in midfield and a lone striker or go for a four, five, one and kind of be a bit more negative. But he sort of sensed actually we can probably take the game to these. So so they went more positive and and, and reaped the rewards of it.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: I just wanted to talk about one takeaway I had from the weekend. And, well, not really a surprising one. Jamie Vardy scored twice in Leicester's 3-0 win over West Brom. He's up to 105 Premier League goals, right? Now, that is one more than Didier Drogba scored in the Premier League in 42 fewer matches, okay? Mm. 20 more than Fernando Torres scored in the same number of games in the Premier League. So, a bit like a chicken korma with coconut jasmine rice, <laughs> is Jamie Vardy massively underrated?
1: <laughs> I don't could Jamie Vardy be underrated at this stage last season when he, you know, when he hit the 100 goal mark, there was, there was pretty good... Uh, there's plenty of fanfare. I think it's just his story which is, which and that's is what I was.
2: That, do you know what? That's what I was going to come back on. That's what people make reference to, right? Stocksbridge Steels and this Sheffield lad who's done this amazing journey in football and he's played for England. He's won a Premier League title, but is there enough credit given to his game?
1: Well, he's a unique proposition in that there's no. There are very few players. Uh, you know, we talked about strikers who can stretch the play. There's there's not really anyone who does it as well as Jamie Vardy. And uh, when he when he first arrived in the Premier League, that was such a shock to everyone. You know, teams eventually just had to sit deeper because they couldn't deal with Danny Drinkwater to, <laughs> to Jamie Vardy in behind. And so even but as teams have learned how to play against him, he still managed to score goals. So he's adapted his game. And obviously Brendan Rodgers last season took the onus off him defensively, said, you, you just stay up there. You know, you don't have to run yourself ragged like a headless chicken, which he has done at times. Uh, and it's ex- extraordinary that he's still scoring goals with such regularity, especially, at, at you know, his, when he's in his mid-30s now.
3: Can, can I ask one one thing? I mean, if he had been, if he'd had the more sort of conventional route into football and kind of had been like a Michael Owen and burst onto the scene at 16, 17 for a top club, um, do we think he'd a do we think he'd reach the same number of goals in such few games and b do we think he'd still be playing to this level at his age i'd probably say maybe with the goals definitely not with his longevity i mean what well, is so remarkable i was just looking i was just looking here i mean that his first season in the premier league five goals in 34 games so actually if you take that season out of it it's an even better ratio and um it's all you, you, you respond there, Gregor. It's the it's the fact that they've they've kind of made he's 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 allowed to play as economically as possible by Brendan Rodgers. So it will just maximise his goal threat. It was one time last season where he was like it was almost one in two shots he was having he would score because he was just converting the two ch- one of the two chances that they create for him. I and mean, it's it's brilliant. And and you're right. If, if if he if you're designing your game to get the best out of your centre forward, then. Um, you are going to get numbers like that. I mean, the one thing with Drogba, which is interesting, is I think Drogba got 50, 60 assists. So, you know, Drogba's, Drogba's game was also about holding it up and bringing in the mid, the midfielders, letting Lampard running in from deep to score goals. And so, you know, in terms of actual weight of goals, I think Drogba did, was involved in more goals than, than Vardy has been, which I think, you know, if we're going to make the debate who's the more complete player, I think... Would I rather have Drogba in a team than Vardy? I'd probably have Drogba. But but, but, but at the same time, I think, you know, two com- two completely different players celebrate them for both their amazing strengths.
2: I like the way you added probably, I'd probably have Drogba in. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> nice to Jamie Vardy. At least we're treating him with respect.
0: I was just going to say, I prob- uh,
3: yeah.
0: probably... as well.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> not taking anything away from Jamie Vardy. And I'm, forgive me, I've not come prepared with the, his goal-scoring numbers, but... He, he, Drogba didn't take the penalties, whereas Vardy does, doesn't he? I mean, both of his goals yesterday were from the
3: spot, so uh, they had a significant amount, don't they? I'm sorry, I'm I'm fully in the penalties count camp. I'm, I'm now I'm fully in the penalties count camp. I, or anyone anyone who says, oh no, it's not a hat trick because he didn't didn't you know didn't it was two penalties. Salah, sorry, <laughs> they all count. Love it. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I I that growing up, my favourite player was. A left-back for Leighton Orient, who was our frequently our top scorer because he took the penalties.
1: What was his name? Lockwood? Yeah. Yeah, good player. Spot on. (laughs) Play against him, Gregor? I did, yeah, yeah.
3: Did he score a pen?
1: Probably, yeah.
2: (laughs) 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 There you go. Those are our our first weekend takeaways, if you like. But a bit like sushi, you learn nothing on day one. So let's move on. There's a new feature in the game, by the way. Um, The last word. Um, it's going to be our final topic. Funnily enough, this weekend, um, who wants to start on the last word? Tell us what it's about. And uh, this Monday, who've we featured?
3: This weekend, um, David Moyes from the uh, from the West Ham Newcastle game um, thought Andy Carroll should have been sent off. He went up for a, for a high challenge, and I think within ten seconds of the start, with um, Thomas Suchek and his his arm elbow connected with Suchek in the in the face, and free kick was given. VAR checked it, didn't think it was a red card, and then I think ten minutes later, he went up for another high challenge and connected with uh, Ryan Fredericks. And so Moyes thought there should have been a red card. Kevin Nolan, who is now part of the West Ham coaching team, was quite looked quite vocal on the bench and was sort of gesturing to the referee that Carroll was using his elbows. Nolan, a former teammate of Carroll's, knows you know exactly what you know exactly what Carroll can do in the air, and um, and it and it's an interesting debate really is to you know should referees be clamping down more on players who uh, go up and use their elbows. And, um, and you know, there was, we, we spoke to Peter Walton, who um, writes referee insight um, in the Times, and uh, he, he he was saying that while uh, referees will give more of a benefit of the doubt to players of Carroll's stature, who naturally, when they jump, their arms will be at the height of a player's head, um, if it's happening repeatedly, and, um, Carroll is going to risk getting suspended and getting red cards. The amount of times after that Suchek incident, the amount of times
0: Carroll dropped into midfield and had a free header completely unchallenged really wasn't surprising because Suchek was left sort of writhing around on the floor after meeting the sharp end of Carroll's elbow. And you could tell no one, no one else really wanted to go up with him after that. And he's done it. He's done it before. I think last season he did the same with Ben Mee and uh, against Burnley. Same happened with Scott McTominay and James and I were talking about this yesterday after, after the game. And it kind of reminds you a little bit of Marouane Fellaini, that kind of height that, that he has and jumping up and leading with the elbow. It's, it's natural in a way to, to try and generate more height, but it's just so dangerous. What was it like, Gregor, when you, you did you come up against strikers like that?
1: Yeah, plenty of them in the lower leagues. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, um, there's of course every every when you're jumping for a header, leverage is important. I think basically there are a few things that mean you're treading such a fine line that you would need VAR to kind of decide it. If, if the arm is anything less than like a right angle and you're leaning with your elbow. You know, you're risking a red card. It's simple as that. The way that the way that Carroll does it, it's kind of, it's not always so blatantly elbow in the face, but he's always leading with his arm. He's almost searching for the player with his arm. And I played against so many. In fact, my my kind of start in football was, I remember uh, I, I made my debut, and the next game was was uh, Stoke City, a uh, Forest debut this was, and Tony Tony Pula's team. Had um, Adi Akumbai, Chris Iwilumu, uh Gifton No Williams, Carlos Saba was a right winger, and the, you know a team of big guys. And Paul Hart called me into the, the manager called me in and said, "Look, he, you know I thought the jersey would have been mine for the next game." He said, "I'm going to put you on the bench because uh, we're playing Stoke." Do you know I didn't know much about Stoke. I you know I'd just come down from Scotland, and uh, they played Wes Morgan at left back, and. Within twenty minutes, Wes had split his head open, he had like a bandage round and i I replaced Wes with fifteen minutes to go, and he came off like a bruised and battered man with a bandage round his head. and I thought that was a good decision not to play me in this game. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah there, i could name I could name lots of people Jason Lee is another one who was like always on the very edge of what you should and shouldn't do on a pitch with your arms and you know some strikers it makes it so horrible to play against and it takes a brave referee to to brandish the red card unless it's something strikingly obvious yeah. so a lot of strikers do it and although it's it's kind of diminished in the game now um, it's still I would still hate to play against Andy Carroll absolutely hate it
0: had it not been inside the first 20 seconds I think he would have gone. If it was in the 60th minute or something like that, I think he would have gone. Because of, because of VAR now, you can't get the cheeky little elbows and the the little subtle niggles now, can you? You can't get away with it.
2: But surely VAR should have picked that up, even if it was after 20 seconds or with 20 seconds to go. You know, if it's a red, it's a red.
1: It should be, yeah, absolutely. It should be by the letter of the law, but I think Tom's probably right. I think, you know, referees still have to be very, even more, even braver. To, to to brandish a red card inside the opening minute of a game, so I think Carroll just treads the line so you know so uh, in fact he doesn't tread the line sometimes he steps right yeah. over it and, and it's pretty blatant.
3: If you're a if you're a centre forward, is it do the, do the benefits kind of outweigh the, the negatives in that you know do you do you do you risk the because I mean obviously like player safety should be paramount, but sort of taking that away from it and looking at purely from a tactical point of view, do you do you want to you know, do you do you do you sort of risk the red card that might or might not come for the ability, as Tom says, to then kind of win your next ten headers unopposed?
1: I think so. I think you know Andy Carroll said had had a few fair few red cards in his time, but not not uh, not in like Sergio Ramos's league is he? So he's no. a, and it's, a, it's it is it is his biggest weapon. And as I say, defenders are terrified. And as Tom said, you saw that. No one really wanted to challenge him unless it's really like absolutely necessary. You let him win the second ball. Sometimes you let him flick it on and you try and win the second ball. So um, horrible to play against.
2: I've always categorised Andy Carroll as a head baller. Anyone know what a head baller is?
1: Go on, Andy Carroll. Well, well,
2: it's quite simple. (laughs) A head baller is someone who's better with their head than they are with their feet. And he's in the category of Marouane Fellaini. Now, it's nothing, look, it's all part of the game. And to be excellent in the air is is a great category. And he's brilliant in the air. I don't think there's anyone else you'd want going on to a ball that's been hung up at the far post than Andy Carroll because he'll clean the keeper out and the whole back four, to be perfectly honest. He looked leaner, by the way. He looked a lot fitter. If he stays fit, Hmm. Andy Carroll, he could be a huge weapon for Steve Bruce and Newcastle. And Steve Bruce afterwards was talking about how he'd worked on Um, His fitness during the break, and he looks better than ever. So there you go. Shed five kilos, apparently. So Andy Carroll um, surely going to be leading the line for Gareth Southgate next summer. I'm sure he'll be back. (laughs) Um, Just on Andy Carroll, just on the impact that he might have for Newcastle United, I think one of the nice things, you know, I was reminded of watching that game is Andy Carroll is back at his traditional home if you like you know he could have been Newcastle's number nine for a decade maybe should have been in another dimension um but he has the chance of a bit of redemption with the Newcastle fans you know if they can have a great season and I think with Steve Bruce someone that loves the club as well that could be a a perfect bromance for the Newcastle fans.
1: I think Andy Carroll's kind of career path has been it's been in one sense tragic actually and that you know it these players who are injured so often and and have such issues with their body are kind of much maligned, but it's very rare that it's that it's a, any fault of their own. You know, Jack Walsh is another player at West Ham who's 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 feeling that just now and on his way out of the club probably. So, if he was to if he was to be able to stay fit and as you say back at his hometown club and score some goals and lead the line for Newcastle, it would be a brilliant story this season. Absolutely.
2: We've got plenty of football to come this week. We've got the Carabao Cup before we join each other once again. And then, of course, another big weekend. Got games to come tonight if you're listening on a Monday as well. Sheffield United against Wolves, which is a pretty big one. Brighton against Chelsea, their opening fixtures uh, of the season. We've spoken about Chelsea on the last pod, just on Sheffield United and Wolves. What do you think we can expect from them this season? Another challenge to the top eight, Sheffield United, or will there be second season syndrome for them?
0: I think it will be so interesting to see that whole second season, whether the tactics do kind of get worked out a little bit with Sheffield United. Um, I think they were so effective last year. And and as Gregor rightly said, noting Alan Neal's tactical now that he has at Sheffield United, I think they will have, they will have recognized that and worked out different ways to play. But uh, I think Wolves are kind of my side who are going to be the the side that really challenges I think to that top 6 again. They they lost Doherty and and that was that was a shame but they've recruited well and and the news with Nuno signing 3 years is huge for them because he's the he's the big figure in that club. He's the reason they are where they are.
1: Sheffield United Chris Wilder just not for a second wants to sit still. He'll want to go better than last season. I think they've got they've had some really in, ex, intriguing signings. You know, some of them are risks. Oliver Burke is someone who um, is one of the be- Will be one of the best athletes in the in the Premier League, and he's had a really kind of since he moved on from Nottingham Forest to RB Leipzig and then West Brom. It's been difficult for him, but if he can find a home, he could be someone who's a real threat. Uh, Ethan Ampadu, a player who needs football. Coming along from Chelsea, obviously had a again a difficult time at R B Leipzig last season, and two fullback, young fullbacks, exciting fullbacks from uh, from Derby County. So you know, I think some some Sheffield United are stronger than last season, but obviously as as we've said, that teams now are a little bit wiser to to what they bring. So, um, so yeah, you know, two two teams again that will be looking to to upset the the big six. I
3: think I think Wolves in particular really exciting and I think it's the fact that they have they've only lost Doherty, you know there were there's so many players there that I thought might be uh, might be snapped up or at least other clubs might might have gone for and, and, and I think and I think um I think if they can the one thing with them was that they were they 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 Nuno uses very few players I think they they used the fewest players last season in the league he makes the fewest changes um and I think it's just if they, to go again with a, with a, they have strengthened, but to go again with the same core of players, um, a, a large number of whom, I think, I think something like six of his start first starting 11 in the championship in Nuno's first game started the, uh, the Europa League quarterfinal. So, I mean, the, the, the fact that it's been a same, the same core for three years now, um, it might need freshening up and I mean I think Nuno said himself they needed to strengthen um, to push on again and so that, that's that's my only reservation with Gentlemen
2: that's our time been a real pleasure thank you for being with me I've been Hugh Wizencroft, and that was Gregor Robertson James Restall and Tom Roddy a reminder you've been listening to the game podcast from the Times if you enjoyed the episode just make sure you give us five stars review us on Apple Podcasts Spotify all your favourite podcasts that's Hit subscribe and you'll get Thursday's episode as soon as it's released. Thanks for being with us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen